Hello again, my friends, and welcome back to Young to Live By, and in particular, this podcast series called Ask a Depth Psychologist, where you submit questions at the $10 tier or higher on Patreon, and we kick it about between ourselves, and we try and come up with an answer that does justice to your question. Now, the general theme of today's podcast, the longest question that we answered, maybe the most significant question that we answered because of the true sincerity of the individual asking it, was all about how to go about helping somebody in a particular manner. Because therapy is one of those strange things. It's You can have social therapy, uh, legally defined therapy, the real nomenclature of what the word means within a social context. And that's therapy, you go see a therapist. But really, therapy is simply working in depth with somebody else. That would be the real definition. And you don't need a legally defined system for all the nuances of a therapeutic relationship to emerge, such as the transference, such as synchronicities and things of that nature. And this individual, which is the first question today, was asking about whether or not we can infect ourselves with somebody else's complex in order to go about helping them. So that was a that was an interesting one to wade through, and the sincerity of that one really is a it's a humbling thing that keeps our channel grounded as well, and keeps the the community that we're all building together here grounded. So of course that's really appreciated, and I hope you enjoy that question. Uh, the second question is um, all about CBT and how there's a I wouldn't say a meme, but you know it, it it's more of a a general pattern you see on this channel where. We do describe how CBT and more conventional forms of therapy typically are less effective than more advanced, more deep, more nuanced, more sophisticated, insert better word here, uh, than CBT itself. And so the question was, why is CBT less than effective? And so we thought we'd answer that because it's a completely valid question. And the, the final question we did today is split into two parts. And the first part is on how can you know that you aren't bullshitting yourself when you engage in a journey like this? You know, is it just a spiritual journey where we believe we're integrating our shadows and meeting the anima and everything else, but really we're just clouded by ego fictions and complexes and other kinds of nonsense. So it'd be interesting to clarify that, I think. And the second part of the question is how you can move from theory to engage in the real world. It's another theme we see on this channel. In the, in, in the last podcast, we answered a question about moving from fantasy to reality and what that line is between them. Well, this one's a very, very similar thing. It, the guy described it as having paralysis anal uh, um, analysis paralysis and how we can get over that, stop being in our heads and start getting real world experience in whatever way your psyche deems that to be significant. So I'm now going to have a quick shirt change and time travel so that I can actually ask Stephen Pauline the right question. Okay, and this first question comes from Laut Tsunami. And he asks, what do you think about purposefully allowing yourself to be infected with someone else's complex, either through empathy or introjection, so that your own self can start to transform the other person's complex inside of you? And he does leave a little story, so we're going to have to settle in and ha have a bit of a listen. It's a very interesting story. Thank you for, for sharing it and the trust that you've put in, put in us with that. Um, and the story goes like this. Uh, I'm asking because about half a year ago I met a friend who, like me, has experienced childhood sexual abuse. I spent the majority of my teenage years trying to process what happened to me and eventually healed myself to the point it is not an issue in my daily life or my relationships and it is something I can fully look at. My friend was not so lucky and they still struggle with what happened to them. A major difference between us is they are unaware of how they are feeling even though they still act out of their emotions unconsciously while I am very aware of my own feelings and what they mean. Their abuse is such a secret. They have only told one other person in their life but I was able to guess what happened to them the first time we met after only talking with them for a few hours because their emotions matched my own so perfectly. When I was wrestling with my own trauma, I was totally alone. If only I could have had one person I could trust, it would have meant the world to me. 
I know they feel the same way, and I want to be that person for them. My hope is, if I can absorb enough of their emotions, then I can not only explain to them what they are feeling, but why they are feeling that and what those feelings are trying to manifest. For them to begin to transform themselves, they must illuminate this dark side of them with their consciousness. But the problem is, their awareness of their self is totally blocked, probably because there is something in there that is trying to kill them. My hope is that I can help start this process for them by acting as a translator between their emotions and their ego. If they can watch themselves transform, they can realise they are not their present state, but the thing that transforms them across time. That is a really solid thing to identify with, and it cannot be undermined like the persona. Also, I can start generating more mature defence mechanisms inside of myself as my immune system reacts to the poison inside of them. So if we get to the point where they need to leave behind some of their dysfunctional defence mechanisms they developed when they were four, I can give them something better. I can't tell if this is the smartest or dumbest thing I've ever tried, but it seems to be working fairly well so far. I'm not a Christian, but I like the part in the Bible that tells people to confess and bear each other's sins. I would really appreciate your wisdom on this. It seems like I'm attempting a kind of therapy with my friend, so I was hoping someone who works as a depth psychologist might actually have some good advice. Well, thank you for your for your sincerity there. And of course, I'm going to defer to yourself, Steve and Pauline, to um, to tackle that better than I could, certainly. Wow, that, I mean, that that's a, it's a, it's a heck of a question, really. I, mean, my, I think he's right to say that he's entering into a kind of therapy relationship with that person, even though it's um it's not formalized as such nonetheless i i think um what happens between him and this other person is nonetheless likely to be challenging for both of them in in the way it would be if it was a a formalized uh clinical situation i think it's a bit of a double-edged sword um in so much as if you've obviously had personal experience of something like that, and, and clearly um, this gentleman has, that it can uh, therefore allow you to reach out to somebody else with a, a deeper understanding of what they might be going through. I think you're also more open to identification, the trap of identification, and assuming that how it is for that person is essentially how it was for you as well because in that process of trying to model somebody else's experience you you almost unintentionally assume that it was like your experience experience in all its parts when it may not be so i think it's um it's a very it's a very brave thing to do and mm. it's a very on the surface at least very compassionate thing to do to want to reach out to somebody in that way but i think you have to think about the inherent dangers in it and and how it might reactivate or reconstellate stuff in yourself that you then have to be able to deal with should that happen so i i would say you know by all means do it but do it with that proviso in place that you know what you're getting into and you know what some of the harmful effects might be as a result of that <clears throat> and um, if you do that and you're still willing to go ahead with it then so be it obviously the the uh, the other person concerned has to be willing to to enter into that and to want to be helped 
um, because you can't clearly you can't force someone and you certainly can't force them down the same path as you've been yourself they have to want to receive that help so um by all means do it but but do it with those those caveats in mind yeah uh, i'd say uh, compassion safer than empathy yes as well um empathy is near identification yes and uh, a lot of therapists uh, go on empathy or what they self-report as being empathy compassion though is complete non-attachment but nevertheless mm. being there with someone and for them uh, it's safer compassion and rapport <laughs> I would say are the two fundamental core skills that if you have them in place you're going to be much more likely to come out of it unscathed yourself um, and prevent your own material from flowing down that gradient from you to them as well. Um, you've obviously got some innate compassion in you just mm. to simply want to help another yes. human being in this way, which is wonderful. Yes. But yeah, I, I agree with Paul on that. Um, absolutely. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you'd agree with me on this, Steve, but I think there's a tendency for maybe people thinking typologically who are extroverted mm. to want to model i mean i find that as an extroverted feeling yeah. type I, I have a tendency an innate tendency to want to model someone else's suffering in order to be able to deconstruct it yeah, um, that's a good point actually. and yeah, it, it, it point. can mm. it can be helpful mm. but it can be dangerous too yeah. uh, and and you do have to be that's able to to mm. um retain that critical factor really so that as you're going through that process you can still distinguish yourself from that other person and and from the unique way in which they're going through what might appear to be a similar process so i would probably we're talking about um typological functions earlier weren't we Stephen mm. about them them all being being available to the ego I would probably have to trawl up my introverted thinking uh, in order to protect myself from some of that yeah. into um, to encourage me to have that discriminatory power to be able to see the differences between my situation and the situation of, of the person I'm trying to help otherwise I would be in danger of falling into an, a, a trap of identification and then you harm yourself and you, you can't take yeah. the person you're working with beyond a particular point either yeah yeah I think you you, you bang on there uh, I've seen Pauline overdo it yes. she's seen me overdo it yeah and I've also seen Pauline do it perfectly well and so effectively that she's been easily able to outperform me for example using my functions uh, in terms of picking up on exactly what's going on for someone um, it's a waveform again because we're not always on our best no. uh, but we tend to use our best function even when that's not working best for us yes. so there's a waveform effect as well and with respect to the point Pauline raised about extroversion then you know in Myers-Briggs terms my intuition's extroverted mm. and that can lead to over adaptation uncritically if you like uh, to another person so yeah I can I can definitely model how that would work negatively and has done yes. you know sometimes yes you do need the full suite of options you do. typologically available for you but um yeah full full 
Perhaps yes, for you, you yes, know, for, for what full you're credit to you Absolutely. for wanting to yeah. reach out in Absolutely. that way and uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, but just just be be mindful mm. of yourself, be protective of yourself as well, because that's better for both of you. And and I think there is the suggestion in in the question that you're aware maybe of of, of how these things could become toxic and I, I can't quite remember how it was phrased but I think you suggested that you had some defense mechanisms in in place to maybe ensure that that doesn't happen you and you don't fall into those traps well obviously that's a, that's a good thing because at least you're you know you're conscious of the possibility of that happening so if having taken all that into account you're still comfortable with going ahead and you, you feel that this person is ready to receive um, some help from you by all means, go ahead, but uh, you know, just just be protective of yourself. Thank you, Lau. Um, the next question comes from Hubert, and Hubert asks, uh, so I heard in one of the videos, and I can't remember which, about CBT being, well, let's just say, less than effective in psychosystems analysis. Does anybody care to expand? And I know you two, this is your favorite topic, and it's slowly becoming my favorite topic <laughs> as well, so I'll let you handle that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's in a lot of, um a lot of videos about this and it's obviously a controversial <clears throat> subject later today i'm going to put a video up on the discord for for the guys who are obviously all, all the guys who are putting questions on are in the discord uh from a Jungian analyst and former psychiatrist who tries to show why the orthodox Jungian approach is as good or better than cbt and he makes a defense and that's the problem, because he defends what he does rather than realises that really he's not actually undermining the effectiveness, shall we say, of CBT. He's not competing with it. He's just saying why what he does is as good in a different way. And that is the problem. And the problem is because they don't compete with CBT at all. They're completely different. And frankly, it's so bad that an orthodox Jungian approach could not compete with any of the variants of cognitive therapy, cognitive behavioural therapy, cognitive analytic therapy, uh, or any of these uh, so-called uh, dialectical cognitivisms that are being deployed out at the moment. It's just not practical in brief, focal, short-term, cost-effective environments at all. Um, so he was defending classical young in an environment that it's indefensible and the reason for that is that they left the field the youngians abandoned the field completely in terms of frontline healthcare and they did so more than a hundred years ago pretty much most of them did there are a handful of people who will either be in an orthodox youngian background or be deploying Jungian ideas in, say, primary healthcare provision, but they're a tiny minority compared to CBT. If the Jungians had kept their emphasis and Jung's original emphasis on working with complexes, there would have been no reason at all for the development of all of the rational therapies, so-called, and the behavioral therapies. It wouldn't have been necessary. But because they, they failed to do that and wandered off into archetypal la-la land, then there was virtually nothing that they did that could be used effectively in that environment whatsoever. So naturally enough, there had to be a development of therapy 
or a kind of therapy that, that, that could compete with that. So what you got then historically was is people like uh, Dubois' rational therapy, and that was contemporary with uh, Jung and Freud and others, um, which focused on a rationalistic approach. And then you, you had behaviorism and you had all of the, the forms of that, and then pure cognitive therapy and then all of the other uh, derivations from that. To understand why it is supposedly effective, this Jungian analyst does argue very well on that. He points out how the construct of how it's measured is political more than anything else. Before you get into the statistics, you have to look at the context of the culture that has produced the so-called statistics. And there are plenty of... Um, other research projects which are in the public domain that show that other forms of therapy are just as equally effective. Even Rogerian counselling is as effective as CBT in a primary healthcare setting. My Our argument is that when we were in primary healthcare setting and we deployed Jung's ideas linked with hypnosis and psychophysiology, we just completely, in terms of outcome, wiped the floor with all of them. And this was a fact because the doctors that we would work for, the practices we would work for, would get rid of their psychiatric provision even. One practice only had two psychiatric referrals in an entire year, in a 12-month period. Because everyone, and there were hundreds of patients who would normally have gone there, were sent to us. Only two went there, and both of them had explosive personality disorders, and one of them detonated in front of me. <laughs> which was uh, not as amusing as at my town because as well as being, as well as thank you as well as being explosive he was violent and you know that had to be dealt with appropriately it was so threatening to the local chief psychiatrist <clears throat> in the area in which we worked and this was in the uh, the pre-fund holding year for this particular practice in other words their money for a psychiatric budget would have been based upon how many psychiatric referrals they had had over the past 12 months they only had two because we dealt with the other couple of hundred and we got really good outcomes mm -hmm. and that practice also got rid of their psychiatric social workers their cognitive therapists their Rogerian counsellors because they were not performing and it wasn't unique to that practice. Every practice we worked at, we outperformed all of the other therapists. But anyway, getting back to this chief psychiatrist of this particular district, wrote to this practice and said, if you don't get rid of those two, we will have to pull the plug on your, on your funding. So they did. They reluctantly pulled the funding on us for NHS <clears throat> provision. We retained the private practice there for a while, but we thought that was unethical. Uh, asking people who wanted to work with us to have to pay up front when yeah. we'd been delivering an NHS provision yeah. and we moved elsewhere. That same chief psychiatrist had an issue with us because his private patients started to come to us and he was losing money. And he would charge an astronomical fee for a 30-minute consultation and then just provide selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor drugs and his version of cognitive therapy. Um, so we weren't very popular with him at all. So in that sense, we know from frontline delivery, in terms of outcome, they can't they can't compete. In terms of theoretical underpinning, they can't compete because they are hopelessly psychoreductive and mechanistic. They have no understanding or training of mind-body connections. They don't really understand social interactions or, or families effectively. And frankly you see anybody can be trained with simplistic 
to deliver simplistic cognitive therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy, which is why it's popular in the NHS. You can get anybody with any kind of uh, basic nursing background or social work background to deliver it. And it appears to be um, cost effective. Cognitive analytic therapy these days in the UK National Health Service, where that's deployed, they will give between 16 and 24 sessions with someone and think that that is brief. We would typically turn people around in less than 10. You know, beyond 10, it would have to be a classical Jungian approach where, and this is where it is applicable, Mm. although not necessarily in an NHS setting because they wouldn't fund for it. If somebody needs a major restructuring of their personality, what Carl Jung called major psychotherapy, as distinct from minor psychotherapy, his distinctions, by the way, major psychotherapy would be a long-term remapping of the hard drive, if you like, of somebody's personality. This would be so-called borderline personality states and people like that. But they form a minority of the population who suffer and who seek help. And were it applicable there, and to use a longer-term approach, then the Jungians have got their place, but it's Mm. still an expensive option. Mm. If it comes to things like phobias, depression, anxiety, psychosomatic disorders, uh, all kinds of things like that, it's just not applicable. And it's not applicable because they gave up on complexes completely. It's very rare to hear Jungians these days talking about them. They argue about whether men have an animus and women have an anima as well as whatever. Uh, and they argue about gender identity and uh, political correctness and, mm. and all the rest of it. They're all into that these days, mm. or at least a lot of them are. Um, they still go on about dreams in, in the way that suggests that they're going to disappear into Disney World or some other fantasy option like that. Whereas, of course, we would use dream work in primary healthcare with people. It's possible to do it quickly. Mm. Uh, we would use enactments, we would use sand tray, we'd use creative art, but we would also use word association techniques and clinical capnography, the infrared mass spectrometry, to detect complexes. We would use the Myers-Briggs to, to, to work out typology. We would use Freudian techniques, free association, for example. We would use active imagination, but we would use guided imagination as well. A whole bandwidth of techniques dependent upon the person who comes in without mm. imposing a theoretical structure upon them. Whereas uh, people who go in for orthodox Jungian therapy tend to be drawn into the theory of it and very often they come out brainwashed and it's like they're in a Mm. cult at that point and they can only speak in that kind of way. Mm. Um, You can see some of them sadly on YouTube that have had long-term Jungian analysis and they're like automata. Yeah, they've had their personality removed. They have. They're no longer who they were when they came in, like someone with a problem. You know, they, they are something else. And they've, they've acquired the language and the terminology to self-abuse themselves with and to keep themselves trapped, usually within a transference relationship. Of course, we'd also use hypnosis as well. Oh dear, how dare you, you heretic, practicing the black arts. And that was said to Freud. Freud was criticized for being a hypnotist because he practices the occult and black arts. Well, it's, it's just some nonsense. Yeah. If, if you use hypnosis based on Milton Erickson and on Ernest Rosser, you are at the cutting edge of the use of imagery and of mind-body therapy, mm. ideally placed for frontline healthcare. It doesn't mean that you're not a Jungian in orientation at all. Ernest Rosser is. He's a Jungian. 
Yeah, not mutually exclusive, are they? They're not. You can work with the unconscious in many, many ways. If you work with it on its own terms, it's quicker, it's faster, and you get better outcomes, frankly. And the person's still relatively intact when you finish. They don't come out as some kind of, uh, you know, walking thesaurus of Carl Jung's collected works and not having a life, because that can be an artifact, an iatrogenic effect of Jungian analysis as it turns the person into some kind of zombie who only uses Jungian speak. Yeah. which is actually completely different from what he <clears throat> intended. Yes. Some of the criticisms of the cognitive therapy from people who use it are that it's too mechanistic, authoritarian, directive, all the things that people sometimes fantasise the hypnosis is about, whereas it's not, because hypnotherapy is very permissive, and it's about engaging the unconscious on its terms. It's not about superimposing your will on another person, because that simply doesn't work. No. That's what went wrong for Jung. Jung did not know how to use permissive techniques in hypnosis. He was using direct and authoritarian methods based on the persona Medici, the fact that he was a doctor, and he would use that, and he found yeah, that that was... He hoped that would carry it. He hoped that would mm. carry it. That, of course, amplified the already existing transference mm. that he was a doctor. Mm. It's white coat syndrome. It's yes. well known. Um, but if he'd have used indirect, mm. permissive techniques, he would have gotten into the psyche far quicker, far deeper, with far less resistance, and he would have brought about significant change without further disruption to an individual's state of mind and state of physical health. But he didn't. It's just a fact. Other youngins took it further, and it's reached its pinnacle with that question with, um, with Rossi and Rossi's work. So... Um, Cognitive therapy is hyper-rational, it's authoritarian, and it's directive. Uh, it's the antithesis of permissive approaches to therapy. Um, you would think, perhaps, that as an introverted thinking type, it would appeal to me, whereas I, I find it, frankly, disgusting. Yes. You know, do. It doesn't appeal to me at all. No. Um, I've also seen, time and time again, how intelligent people simply outthink the cognitive therapist, run rings around them. There is no rapport in a so-called cognitive alliance. If you think about how that is structured as a concept, it's not relating to somebody at all. It's still focusing on cognition, whereas a lot of people don't have that style. People have an evaluative style, feeling types, of certainly rational, but the way that they engage with being rational is in a different way altogether from this hardcore, if you like, extroverted or even introverted thinking approach of the cognitive analytic or cognitive behavioural therapist who sees somebody just as something to be adjusted and told what to do and to go off and do homework and whatever, which is just sheer nonsense. Even the Rogerian counsellors who I have not a great deal of respect for, frankly, in terms of, of their theoretical background and their theoretical constructs, at least they know that relating to another human being is important. Mm. So, so that's difference again. So you only really know what works when you pressure test it and you go up against these other approaches. And we've done it, and we know that what we do works and works well. And we ran it past Franz Jung, Carl Jung's only son, you know, in Carl Jung's personal study where he saw patients himself and he accepted it. We have no further justification. Case rested. End of. I'm afraid on, on that point. It worked on me too. So Yes, well, and, and you're very rational, James, aren't you? Oh, very, very, very rational. 
Sometimes. In Persona, I'm rational. When you get rid of the Persona, no, I am not, by any stretch of the imagination. I know, I, I, I know, I know, I know, I know somebody who, um, very recently, they went to go do CBT. Obviously, I'll, I'll lead them anonymous. It was on the NHS. It was online. They were, like, typing to the therapist. So there wasn't even in person. It, was, it wasn't even over Zoom or something. It was actually typing. And uh, this person knew my thoughts on CBT. And I was like, okay, doesn't matter. If it's going to help you, it's going to help you. You know, and I will not take that away from you because obviously you don't want to suffer. The person ended up getting dropped by the therapist after like a few sessions. The therapist basically hinted, go away now. Because you haven't, oh. you haven't responded to my texts. And the texts were basically like, how are you feeling? No, oh, I'm not very good. Well, why? Now, and this, this, this is weird. I think I was practicing CBT when I was like 12. This is not to, to degrade the individuals doing it, but it seemed to naturally, you know, it seemed to naturally come from me anyway. That someone would come and be like, "Oh, I'm I'm suffering with this." I'm like, well, why don't you consider it this way? You know, what, what, why not? So yeah, um, obviously um, I'm being trained by you two, and um, I've spoken to probably somewhere between fifteen and twenty people now on consultations over on the Patreon page, and it's not run as strict therapy. Um, they're just general chats. As we were answering in Lau's question earlier, actually, you work in depth with someone, it's, regardless of whether or not you call it therapy, it still counts as sort of um, therapy. Um, a good a good chunk of good chunk of those guys have seen massive improvements very, very, very quickly. And obviously, that's not me because I'm new to this. I'm just doing the best I can. But it does highlight how ineffective the other methods so far have been. And it's been CBT and it's been Jungian analysis, for example, going through dreams for an hour. And it's like, that's not going to help you. I think the thing that, that you the takeaway from our experience is that it's not about outcomes either way, patient outcomes. It just isn't, is it? Yeah. It's about something else, mm. which, you know, I guess we're getting into power and the helping professions mm. and, uh, you know, the, the abuse of that relationship and uh, whether something's cost effective or not and so on. So, you know, it's reducible, sadly, to power and, and budgets very often. Mm. Yeah. in terms of what you can actually access for yourself it is uh, yeah and, and the power includes turf turf wars it does dominance and it control does. absolutely it and, does uh, whoever Ken's chief psychiatrist big chief oh, almost yeah, isn't yeah, it yeah. 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 yeah he didn't like us no well i knew him but pauline knew him from psychiatry worked with him directly then and then when we were in primary health care became a real problem because yeah. he, he couldn't micromanage what we were doing mm. or even attempt to um, we had to try and leverage that on um, on local doctors, but you know we and I know I certainly did. I had psychiatrists and clinical psychologists as patients yes, and, and GPs, medics of all you kinds. Did. They wouldn't go near these people because they knew what the <laughs> problem was and they knew that we were effective. And some of that is down to personality, obviously, because the therapist is the vehicle for the delivery of the system. Mm -hmm. But if you have a good system, it will work better for for you whoever you are and people don't like to think that but it is true and if you have both it's better again if you can have both it's better again yeah and also you know it's that it's that in the moment experience of working with another another person for example the persona i've got here is completely different with than the persona i have when i work with people you know face to face in person because it has to be you know, you, you have to log on, as I, I've said in a previous podcast, to how that person makes sense or indeed nonsense of their experience, ongoing, past and future. Uh, and that, that, that is an art form. 
a relational art form but it does become the medium for how you d you deliver the underpinning knowledge that you have so it's important to 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 understand that and something which is dogmatically theoretically limiting uh, and uh, fries within uh, a top-down culture like the NHS um, like CBT does you know I mean CBT can't compete with Jungian uh, material where Jungian material works well I, I talk about the orthodox analysts here but as I say the, the main problem is that they the Jungians just gave up on on pastoral work on real work with real people and just disappeared into Disneyland I'm afraid they're off into, into fantasy Mickey Mouse territory and they're still there now I'm afraid that they're almost irrelevant and it's the same with the Freudians there's a lot in, in Freudian theory which is applicable, really, mm -hmm. really, mm -hmm. really applicable. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we first went to primary healthcare, we could have been in, in Vienna in 1895 because everything that Freud and Breuer saw came in in exactly the same way. Human nature doesn't change. And a Freudian and Breuer approach was appropriate for the volume of people that we were seeing. So we were using Freudian techniques and a Freudian perspective up to the point where we had to then modify that, as Jung did, and bring in his complex model and so on. Working with people uh, in depth or even in minimal depth, we would use dream work, of course we would, and creative therapies and all the rest of it, but a lot of it, a lot of it boiled down to the kind of things that Freud and Freud, uh, Freud and uh, Freud, Freud and Freud So. Um, in studies on hysteria, mm. classic work. That's the that's the the real birth of modern psychotherapy. Is that book not Freud's interpretation of dreams, but that book, without a doubt. Mm. Well, thank you, Hubert. I hope that answers your question. Of course, uh, this next one comes from Farmageddon. Farmageddon has two little questions, and he or she, of course, asks. Well, first of all, hello. Thanks for all the great work that you're doing. It's greatly appreciated. And I have two questions. One. Since we are doing most of this work in a self-directed and autodidactic manner, how can we be sure that we aren't falling prey to self-delusions and that we aren't BSing ourselves in any meaningful manner? It's probably best we tackle that one first before we go into, into the other one. But what do you guys think? Oh, wow. That's, that's a, it's a very good question, isn't it? Mm. Um, well, sometimes it is hard to know whether yeah, you're both that, that shitting would... yourself. Or would be, be that, my... that would be my response, is that you, yeah. can't, you can't know. You can't always know. But that's the journey. And the journey is the self-correction and the making of the mistakes. And uh, if, if you're really motivated to do it, jump in with both feet. But, but make sure that your ego strength, your ego strength, if you like, is sufficiently strong because when you jump in with both feet you make a big splash and there's a lot of ripples and these ripples come back at you so make, make sure that your, your, your ego boundaries your ego boundaries are, are secure uh, and you're, you're likely to with, to be able to withstand whatever you disturb by going in but you know if, if you're motivated and you're relatively healthy and stable go for it because it's all about growth and don't worry you know, learn from your mistakes. Well, it probably helps to be with a community of people who are doing similar yeah, things definitely. because there, yeah. there is a resource there, isn't there, there to is. tap into? There is. Yeah. Uh, so you're not completely alone in that regard. Mm. Or if you know, if you have a significant other, and and you know they can yeah. assist you in some way. Um, obviously, that that's a, a very useful thing to have. So, um, yeah, 
by all means go for it but uh try and build in some support for yourself as well yeah yeah it reminds me of another thing you two said on a podcast as well and it's advice that you gave me before too which is um give it time between decisions it was two days which was your your, your invitation because you know going in and playing with the unconscious and i say playing you know it, it can be rough play sometimes it, the questions and decisions will start to arise because you're not the one completely in control and so if there's anything radical that comes up having the self-awareness to say i'm going to wait a little bit i'm going to sleep on it as, as they say it's, it's probably a good check i guess it yeah. is it yeah. is yeah it's an example of uh, ego strength ego strength really is being able to to make that decision and stick with it okay and the and the second question from farmageddon is um i often suffer from analysis analysis paralysis i like that phrase and end up consuming more and more information without putting what I've learned into practice. I'm absorbing a lot of the theory and I find it very insightful, but what are some practical and actionable steps that I can take to start self-analysis? Or perhaps more precisely, what steps would you advise I begin with assuming I just have a passing familiarity with Jungian concepts? Thanks again. So it's like, what's, what's a self-analysis starter kit, I guess is after. The safest way is your dreams because they're natural and they give you an objective counterbalance mm. to whatever position you're mm. in now. So honestly, uh, it's the safest way. Uh, then I would deepen that by using some kind of imaginal technique. And if possible, finding people that you can share the journey with. Mm. Um, increase your absorption, if you can, of the theory. I know that this seems as if I'm contradicting myself. So long as you don't get absorbed by that, in a complete sense absorb it don't be absorbed by it because it it's an investment and you can you can come back to it you can pressure test yourself so don't worry if you don't complete reading a particular book or uh, an idea hasn't been fully absorbed or anything like that it's all feeding in to your desire to know yourself better Mm. Um, and then let your psyche respond and it will through dreams uh, and other things Learn as much as you can and uh, go for it, I would say. That would be my advice. Mm. It, it depends, too, whether it's purely a, an intra-psychic thing, doesn't it? Or yeah. you, you, you're trying to um, put what you know and what you're understanding to test uh, or, or trying to test it in the outer world, mm. for example. It, I guess it just depends what it is you, you're trying to resolve. But there are probably all sorts of practical and, and actionable yeah things that you could be doing Mm. um it just depends what it is that's working itself through if you're a more introverted person we were talking earlier today probably the previous podcast about the utility of that technique in the hypnosis manual that people are finding quite shocking and, and interesting because it's got that introverted appeal but at the same time it's actionable and you'll get a response back straight away so it could be the that magnitude of stimulus that you need to oh to get going goodness me (laughs) 